Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to The Reset with me, Sam Delaney, the podcast about mental health, but without all the bollocks. My guest this week is the author, broadcaster and former New Labour communications chief, Alistair Campbell. Alistair was a successful Fleet Street journalist before becoming Tony Blair's formidable spin doctor at number 10 in the late 90s and early noughties. He's a passionate Burnley fan, a proud Scot and can be as tough and as brash as you might expect. I know from experience, over the years as a journalist, I've interviewed Alistair about politics many times and the discussions have often been robust. But over the years, I've also got to know another side of him too, one that's more sensitive and vulnerable. This is a side he shows in his new book, Living Better, a brilliantly honest and moving account of his lifetime struggles with mental illness. Alistair suffered from bouts of depression his entire life but he's never shied away from discussing it publicly in the hope that it might help other people who are going through the same sort of thing. That's exactly what The Reset is all about, so I was pleased he agreed to join me on this week's pod. He was characteristically candid and funny too, and I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Alistair Campbell, welcome to The Reset. Thanks for joining me. Can I do it again? (laughs) (laughs) Alistair Campbell, welcome to The Reset. Thank my you for pleasure. joining my me. My pleasure, Sam. Thank you. How are you this morning, Alistair? I'm all right. I'm cold at the moment. I've just come back from a 30-minute swim in the Lido. Mm. In, in freezing cold water? Uh, the water, funny enough, wasn't as cold as outside. It was, if you do it every day, I've been doing it every day through the winter, apart from when we've been in lockdown, and you do get used to it. But the wind today was sort of, so it's actually felt colder out of the water than in it. It was really Oh, weird. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exercise is a podcast about mental health, as you know, and um, exercise is obviously a very big thing for many people, including you. Um, I know you're a big runner. I didn't know you were a big swimmer. Um, I actually swim more than I run now. because Really? Yeah, well, I think one of my many uh, psychological impediments is that if I stop getting better at something, I get quite disheartened. Uh. And my running just hit a kind of... I just stopped improving. And then 
I got to a point where when I was running and thinking, God, this is slow. And then I just couldn't kind of lift it. But by then I was doing triathlons and I became absolutely hooked on the cycling, mm. which I still am. But then Fiona, my partner, she swam every day since I've known her. And I started this thing of going to the Lido and seeing who could keep going through the winter. And I just kept through the whole way. Uh, so I found a new competition, how to stay in the water longer than Fiona. You're very intense, aren't you, Alistair? Do you think that's like one of your issues, is that everything has to be always better? That must be well, exhausting. Yeah, but there's, there's, a, there's an illness called maladaptive competitiveness. Right. I think Roy Keane had it. I think a lot of people have it. Lance Armstrong's definitely had it. Yeah. Um, no, I am very, very competitive. In fact, Fiona, who's not, she's like just so sort of chilled about this sort of stuff. But I do this stuff. She, We go swimming right in the morning. And I'm now, because it's just the temperature just picking up, I can, I can, I can do front crawl the whole time. Fiona is faster than me at breaststroke, but I'm faster than her at front crawl when she's doing breaststroke. <laughs> and I will regularly overtake her just before she gets to the end of the, the, the lane. And then shout to the whole pool, I won. I mean, I, I accept it's sad, but there we are. Well, you know, you've been in a very long relationship. So, I mean, it, obviously this edge you lend to it, it must work. <laughs> um, Alistair, one thing that really interests me about you is that obviously you've been talking uh, and writing and being so open about mental health, your own mental health for many years now. But... Um, what was it like? When was the first time you felt comfortable doing that? Because I think about your background, you know, um, and sort of like being in, in in Fleet Street, particularly in the era you were in it, where it still has this very kind of aggressive, macho, intense environment. Politics and government, very much the same. Um, media in general, like you work in now, you know, something where people place a lot of emphasis on keeping up appearances and a certain image. Mm. Uh, so the first time you started being openly uh, open about your mental health, was it very difficult? I, d I never found it difficult. Um, and I was, I was very lucky in that. And you're right, the Fleet Street in the 80s, when I had my first really bad breakdown, in fact, it's the only time I've ever had psychosis, um, I was really lucky. Not only did my old boss give me my old job back, which was a big thing, but also when I went back to the mirror, um, people were, in, by and large, they were incredibly understanding. And I just made the decision from the word go, I'm not going to hide anything. I'm going to tell people I had a breakdown. I'm going to tell people that I was in hospital. I'm going to tell people that I was in a bad way. I told them all that I'd been advised to stop drinking. And that, you know, that was important because it was such a drinking culture. Mm. And I'd say 95% of them just got it and they, you know, one or two kept trying to drag you out to the pub and say, you know, uh, and that I think was a way of them persuading themselves they didn't have a problem. Yeah. Uh, but no, I found it very, very straightforward. And then when I worked for Tony Blair, he knew about my breakdown, knew about the drinking, knew about the psychosis and didn't, you know, just wasn't, but he really didn't, really didn't seem to bother him at all because he, he realised that that's not what I was like now. Now, the depression thing is a bit different. I didn't go around advertising it to people, but at the same time, I think people, 
you know, again, Fiona will tell you, my moods do communicate themselves very strongly, both ends of the spectrum. So it wasn't I was hiding it, but I didn't kind of go around talking about it. But I've never, ever felt embarrassed. I've never felt uncomfortable. I think the other thing is I had a brother, my older brother, Donald, he had schizophrenia. And, you know, that was worse than anything I've had. And he was so open about it. Um, and we were kind of so proud of him in the way that he'd that he lived with it and the sort of life that he led. He's sadly he's dead now. Um, that you know, I just uh, I never felt any shame about it. I felt very proud of him. Um, he was an amazing musician and he was uh, a really good bloke, and I felt very proud of him. So I never felt I had to hide his condition from anybody. Uh, and if anybody ever thought they could have a go at him over it, I would, you know, be first in line to be on his side. And so I felt for me, it just, I think that made it easier for me just to think, well, you know, yeah, I can talk about it. And it was almost accidental the way that I started talking about it once I'd left Number 10, because I ended up writing a novel about mental illness, All in the Mind. And there was so much in there that was really my own stuff kind of being funneled in, which I think a lot of people do with their first novel. And I just, I don't know, I just got a sense of how, what this was tapping into and that it kind of, I felt with all the different skills I've got from my past, that this was a place that I could really get into and do stuff that was really, really useful. So, you know, I enjoy campaigning about it. I enjoy talking about it, um, you know. But you also have this tough guy image, you know, this sort of um, Malcolm Tucker kind of kind of image. And what and it's quite powerful that I think, because the fact that you that that juxtaposed with the fact that you can be very open and sensitive mm. about your feelings and your vulnerabilities. Presumably people find that very powerful. Yeah. Listen, I get a lot of feedback now. Um when we're out kind of walking the dog on the heath, uh, you know, I still get quite a lot of politics. I get quite a lot of Brexit. I get quite a lot of Labour. I get quite a lot of football. <laughs> I find a lot now is about mental health. Mm. And I do find a lot of people, I think you're right, you know, a lot of men do feel that because I am so kind of, I just, I can talk about this just as easily as I can talk about, you know, Burnley beating Wolves. 4 nil, and Chris would get in a hat-trick with one of the greatest <laughs> greatest performances of all time. I can talk just as easily about that. And I think it does make it easier for people. And so, yeah, I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of people just getting in touch with me. And and some of them are amazing. I mean, honestly, I got this, I got this email the other day that honestly reduced me to tears because it was like, if you, you know, my, my book on depression, right, there's a quote on the front. This book could save lives, Stephen Fry. Okay, now that's the sort of nice thing that people say about each other's books, and you know, I would probably say the same for him, kind of thing. But the other day, I got a, an email from this guy up north. Uh, he lives near Manchester, and he said that he's had he's in his thirties, he's in his late thirties, he's got two young kids, uh, and he's had depression on and off all his life. His dad, he says, he's got a very good relationship with his dad you know, which a lot of men don't, but he said he, he made a point of saying he got a very good relationship with my dad and his dad gave him my book to read. And he said, I'll be honest, I couldn't face it. I put it on my bedside table and it sort of sat there for weeks and I was going through a really, really bad time. I didn't even open it. Uh, and 
I decided one night I'm lying in bed and I decided I was going to, you know, I've had enough. I'm going to kill myself. And I persuaded myself my wife would be happy without me. My kids would be happy without me, et cetera, et cetera. I waited till she was asleep, middle of the night, got up, went down quietly, got in the car. I'd worked out where I was going to do it. This uh, road off the M65, steep hill, oak tree at the bottom, seatbelt off, bang. He'd worked it all out, okay? He said... He works about 50 minutes from where he lives. And often, when he's on his way to, work, to and from work, he listens to audio books in the car, okay? He said, I don't know what made me do it, but I decided to download your book in the car. He said he downloaded it. He said, by the time I got to chapter three, which was about my cousin who killed himself, uh... Um, and, and listening to me talking about the conversations I had with his children, where I was trying to persuade them that they must never, ever think that this was because he didn't love them. It was probably in part because he did and he felt they'd be happy without him because I've had that thought process when you've got suicidal ideation. And the guy said, I just went off in the next junction, turned around, went home, told my wife what I'd been doing and promised I'd never, ever do it again. Wow. You know, so that's a guy, I don't know, I might meet him one day. I probably won't, but that's somebody that's like, you know, been, been touched. And I, you know, I don't get that many as dramatic as that, but I get a lot of people. And I'll tell you the other thing that's really interesting about this book is Fiona, my partner, wrote a chapter, what it's like living with somebody's depression when it's not your own. She had a massive response from partners, and she's now got this group. She's set up a group of people they meet and just talk online all the time Mm -hmm. about what it's like when they're living with somebody. Because, of course, for them, there's no support at all. So she's set up this little network now. of um, Because if you think about it, you know, you know know this, when, when when you're in... I know for myself, and I've thought about it, and I've tried to change this, but when I'm depressed, and I think this goes for most people, on the one hand, you feel kind of utterly wretched, but you also become incredibly selfish. You become incredibly wrapped up in yourself. And I think that is hard. I mean, when I I think back of the times when I was feeling horrible, feeling terrible, but looking back, I was, I was, I'm afraid, I was taking it out on Fiona. I was making her, I wanted her to feel as, as bad as I felt. Why should she not feel as bad as I felt? And she, she says in the piece that she used to go around the place thinking, well, it must be something that I'm doing because I'm the most important person in his life. He's not happy. He's being horrible to me. He seems to be able to be nice to be other people when they phone up. But, you know, and I wasn't being horrible as in sort of hitting her or anything like that, but just not speaking. And it's like, and that's something that I have fixed. Yeah. What, by being more honest and open with that? Absolutely. When you're feeling like this. As soon as I start to feel the depression coming on now, the very first thing I do is I tell her. Yeah. And then she suggests, depending on how bad it is, whether I go and see David, my psychiatrist, or, you know, whether... But just that fact of telling her, um, and I tell the kids as well if they're here, 
yeah. just it just opens it up and it means and you know one of the one of the best things that when I started to see it, I didn't see a psychiatrist regularly till 2005. And I say in the book that I was, I was self-harming. I was beating myself up. Mm. And I did it once out in Hampstead Heath and Fiona was there and she was like really shocked. And, and even as I was punching myself, I was in my head, I was saying, you've got to go and see somebody. You can't, this, this is like, this is, <laughs> this is beyond yeah. just waking up and feeling a bit shit. This is bad. And anyway, one of the first, not one of the first things, but a few months into seeing David, I was seeing him, once I'd made the commitment to start seeing him, I saw him really regularly. I mean, like sometimes it was three times a week. And now I barely see him because I kind of, I feel I'm through it. I only get in touch now when I'm really bad. And one of the first things he did was, because we talked about it so much, he said, we talked so much about your work and at one point, he actually did suggest, do you think we could get Tony and Gordon to come along for a chat here? Because I think they're... <laughs> and, and obviously, we, like, we talked a lot about, about Fiona and the children. So he said, mm. I'd like to see Fiona. And then when he'd seen Fiona, he said, I'd like to meet the children. And what he did, what he the reason he wanted to do that was, it was partly so that he could say to them, you must never, ever blame yourself. And you must never think that he's not the same person. He's just the same person in a different mood. Um, and that was, that was really important. And that, that was a turning point, I think, for me and Fiona. It's really interesting, the subject of what you tell your kids, because I think, you know, a lot of dads listen to this podcast and, and a lot of them, you feel so much guilt about, you know, the way in which it could be affecting your children and also about how you talk to them. So your, your kids are adults now. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, seen your fantastic documentary depression and me in which grace, your daughter, you know, obviously worked with you on that and is in it and is really kind of seems really brilliantly. I'm watching it and I'm thinking it's so wonderful the way she's so relaxed and confident in the way in which she discusses it with you. And, and that brilliant sort of way of almost taking the Mickey out yeah. of you, which, which must be quite, pleasant for you in a way because it shows that she's relaxed enough to take the piss and there is a fear in that for a lot of dads about discussing these sorts of vulnerabilities and the mistakes you've made very openly with your kids what was your yeah. first experience of doing that um i mean again i hid it for quite a long time but there's you know there's a couple of bits in the book where i describe i describe once we were on holiday in france and uh i was i heard this conversation where Fiona had been in the bedroom with me and then she walked out and Rory, our eldest, was there and Fiona was not in a very good mood with me and Rory said to Fiona, he said, what's wrong with Dad? And she said, oh, nothing much. He just wants to kill himself. Uh, and I heard that, that was quite a sh shock and that actually was one of the things that made me think, I've got to talk to him about this. Mm. And then another time, Callum, uh, who, you know, went off, went on to have his own issues and is touch wood recovering alcoholic, hasn't had a drink for eight years. Um, another time, he, again on holiday, uh, and holidays often were a kind of crash point for me. Yeah. And that makes me feel even more guilt because you're thinking, I'm, you know, the one time you're meant to be able to dedicate yourself to your kids and I'm... 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Suddenly just in a massive Great Depression. And I was sitting in the bathroom at this house that we'd rented just hiding away, and I was just, I, don't, I can't explain why, but I was just sitting on the edge of the bath in tears. And Callum came in and said, Dad, what's wrong? I said, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. But again, I, I started to talk to him about it. Um, and then when I, saw, when I started seeing the psychiatrist in 2005, so, okay, they were then, you know, older, but they were still not full-grown adults, as it were, Um. I, I sat them down one by one and said, right, listen, I want to just tell you what's going on. And Grace, to be fair, she's from when she was actually quite young, of all of them, she was the one that if she saw me lying on the sofa, Cobito, she would say, you know, she wouldn't say what's wrong. She'd say, why are you doing that? <laughs> Not in an aggressive way, but just like, wow. I want to know what's going on. And she always does. They, you know, she always wants to know what's going on. And I found it very, very helpful. Um, I think the boys are less less kind of demonstrative in a way. Um, but listen, all of my kids have had their issues. And, you know, the, the other thing about, I think if you bring your kids up to feel they can be open, I think that's better for all of us. It's interesting you talk about holiday there. Obviously, there's, a, a, a you know, an addictive element to your personality. And it is one of your biggest addictions, just being busy. And when that stops or slows down, you literally don't know what to do with yourself. Yeah, I think for me, there's something else at, at play with this. Is I've, I've, I've noticed that apart from football and being in a football crowd, in fact, not just any football crowd, being in a Burnley crowd, mm. apart from that, I don't really enjoy kind of mass events. I like being... I've never been one to go to concerts with the bloody phone and the light on and do all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I love listening to music, but I like listening to music on my own. I like having the headphones in and listening to it. I, I, don't, I don't like mass events. Um, interestingly, if you've read my diaries, you know, 1997 election, I was depressed. I realise now when I read my diaries of the election day, when we won and got that landslide, by the time we got to... Festival Hall and Tony's up there at New Dawn, is it not? I was depressed. I wasn't enjoying it. I think I don't like situations where you're meant to feel something. Yeah. And I find Christmas, weddings, uh, funny, funny enough, I'm better at funerals than I am at weddings. Don't, don't, I don't know what that means. 
<laughs> but I don't like weddings. I'm not big on parties. Um, and, and I think that's a kind of, I don't know what it is. I think it's a kind of, I'm quite good at being isolated, I guess. Um, but certainly holidays have always been this. I think it's not the fact that I, because I am, I stay busy on holidays. I just do different sorts of stuff. But I think it's, it's the decompression. I think you put your mind in a kind of, you know, compressed state when you're working and you're flat out or you're writing a book or you're making a film or you're doing your podcast, whatever it might be. And then when you're meant to relax, I find it very hard. Do you aspire to sort of, you know, I can't remember who the French philosopher who said it was, but the, the, I paraphrase the quotes like all of man's problems stem from an inability to just sit quietly in a room. Right. And I, I aspire to just be happy doing nothing. But I'm not very good at that. It strikes me you're the same. Do you, do you aspire to be better at just having empty days and being relaxed with that? No. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, maybe I will. Look, look, I'm not as busy as I was. Um, but I do slightly panic if I'm not busy. Um, mm. and, and the other thing about, you know, about me is I can – I do work on the move. I mean, I can – I can be watching the cricket on the telly and I'm working. I can, you know, some of my best writing I've done on planes and trains. I love working on trains. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, one of the things I, I've realised about football, one of the things I've missed about going to every Burnley game, which normally I do, is actually it's as much as the football and the community and all that – it's actually having those three hours either way, just on the train, doing what I've been thinking yeah. through the week. That's what I'm going to do on the train on Saturday. I don't like emptiness. I don't like, I don't like time to drift. But I've got a lot better. I've got a lot better than I was. I mean, I, you know, I can, when we go to, I go to our place in France, right? I mean, I, I, I will sometimes just sort of lie out in the sun and do nothing. Not very often, but I will do it. But no, I, that is not an aspiration. Definitely not. How does Fiona cope with that? Is she someone who's happy to sort of chill sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think she says in, she says in a chapter in the book that she she says that what did she say? Life with me is difficult but never boring. <laughs> um, and I once said to her, "Life with you is boring but never difficult," <laughs> which isn't true. Which is neither of those things are true. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I think sometimes she finds it difficult, and she, you know, sometimes. If I'm on the, if I get my depression scale, in a way, sometimes the kind of the chronic lows in a way are probably easier to deal with for the other person when you know that you've been through them before and you've worked out your little tactics and strategies to get through them. I, I, I think sometimes it's when I'm at the other end, even though she says that can be very funny and, you know, we can have a lot of laughs and what have you. Sometimes when I'm at that end of the scale, a uh, bit manic, I think that's quite difficult as well. A lot of people would say, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure your, your, um, your therapist and, and other professionals have said, you know, really this sort of, you know, manic tendency that you have, although it's been awful in the bad times, it's also, if you didn't have it, you might not have been as successful as, as you are, you know, in all the various things you've done, because it is that manic energy that has 
driven, I guess, a, a lot of your professional success. Yeah, well, so, I think so. I mean, I, I again, sorry to keep quoting the book, but it, the, 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 you know, I say in there that I once complained to a newspaper because they wrote a piece saying that I'd had a successful career despite having a history of mental ill health. And I said, well, how do you know it's not because of? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I quote this friend of mine who's a, he's a, he's an American psychiatrist called Nasagami, and he's writing a book about Martin Luther King. And his theory is that the reason Martin Luther King is Martin Luther King and one of the great figures of history is not, is not despite manic depressive, it's because of it. You know, the mania gave him that kind of energy and power and charisma and the ability to inspire and motivate. And his, and his, his, his depression, he says, gave him that kind of understanding of what beats inside the heart and the human soul. And, you know, it's a nice, simple theory, but I like it. So you might not want to wish this thing away completely when you look at the impact. It's, you would have had a very different life without it. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, I remember Stephen Fry when he was once interviewed and somebody said, you know, if there's a red, there's a red button there. If you press that red button, your bipolar disorder will go and it'll never come back again. Would you press it? And he thought long and hard and then he said, no, probably not. Mm. So sometimes if you hit real lows, do you ever sort of, I mean, I know that when you, when you hit what you would describe as a, um, as a nine, an eight or a nine, because I know you have a, a rating system mm. for your mood every day, which you talk about in the book. Um, it's hard to comfort yourself because at that stage your, your brain's pretty irrational. But do you, is it ever something we think, well, this is the price I have to pay for the good times? Uh, I'm not sure I think it at the time, but I do, th I, I do think that, mm. uh, you know, back to football, I don't think Burnley fans would be enjoying it. We wouldn't be enjoying ourselves as much as we are at the moment by yet another year in the Premier League and, you know, winning away at Liverpool and winning away at Arsenal and winning away at Everton and winning away at Wolves. We wouldn't be enjoying that nearly as much if we hadn't also seen us losing 4-1 at Hartlepool mm. uh, with having two players sent off. The only time I ever got Tony Blair to go to a Burnley game that was Burnley, Hartlepool. Hartlepool, Burnley. Yeah. Peter Adelson came as well. But um, <laughs> oh, yeah. That was his constituency. He should have had a season ticket. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us about the, the jar, Alistair, which um, I know that, you know, over the years, uh, as, as again, you talk about in a book and you've documented in the film, you know, you have tried a lot of different approaches to tackling mental health problems. Um, but it feels like this this um, this idea of the jar has been one that's been particularly useful. So for people unfamiliar with it, tell us about that. Well, there you are. It's on my desk. Oh, nice. That is the jam jar. Yeah. Um, well, this came from a woman in Canada who I went to interview for the film and the book, not actually about depression, but about genetics and whether mental illness was genetic, because that's her field of expertise. But as we got talking, she told me, and she won't mind me saying, because she said it publicly, that she's a depressive as well, a woman called Janine Austin. And so we, we got, we, she, got, she told me how she works on her depression. And she basically said, and I've, by the way, I've carried this with me ever since, uh, bottom of the jam jar, sediment, your genes. Rest of the jam jar, your life, filling up with good and bad. 
Mm. And most of the time, most people can cope. Okay. Most of the time, most people, it's kind of just about manageable. When it stops being manageable, the jar explodes and we're ill. And she said, what we should do is rather than trying to undo everything inside the jam jar, is actually grow the jam jar. And as she was talking, I didn't really understand what she was on about. But then I woke up a few nights later in the middle of the night and I went downstairs. In fact, if you hold on, I'll show you, I'll show you what I drew. It, it looks faintly disgusting, but <laughs> so now I now have it up here. This is what I went downstairs and drew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. kind of grotesquely phallic. It is grotesquely phallic, which is totally awesome. So, <laughs> and he goes, sediment, life, and then up here are my kind of extensions to my jam jar. FFF, Fiona family friends. Mm. MA, meaningful activity, work and change in the world. Sleep, diet, exercise, Burnley Football Club, music, creativity, curiosity. And I've got a few more like that. Scenery, my dog, my bike, etc. And if you'd have said to me the day before I got my jam jar, how do you look after your depression? I would have said medication and a psychiatrist. Mm. But when I was doing this, they're way off the scale, even though I still take them and I still see David. Um, and, what, and I use that now as an active tool. So when I feel the depression coming on, I say to myself, must be nice to Fiona. Uh, must phone the kids. Must phone my sister, who's the only one in my family left. Must phone, must, must sleep, must watch what I eat, must do exercise. And I'll go through them one by one. Listen to music, not the news. Read mm. books, not newspapers. These little sort of things come into play and they help me. Yeah. So it's like um, rather than people, there, there are people, and there was an element of this at the start of your film where it's almost like, there, is there a thing, is there a silver bullet out there that can fix me? And people think that, and some people think it is medication or they're going to find an incredible therapist who just takes it all away. But I guess, does the jam jar theory suggest that really what we all need is a toolkit? You need a collection of different things. Yeah, I think it, what it suggests to me, and maybe this wouldn't have worked at an earlier part in my life, but I think that, I do think that without being kind of overly introspective, without being overly kind of, self-obsessed which as i said earlier i think when you are mentally ill i think that becomes a kind of you know a condition of it but without <clears throat> without that i i really do think it's important that people try to think their own way through stuff mm. now they might not be able to do it on their own which is why i think you know i definitely was helped by seeing somebody um i've definitely been helped by talking to more people about it including you know including people like you including like just people that you meet and you feel you can be open with that has definitely helped me think my way through it. And I think at the end of that process, this I was just waiting for something like this to say, well, actually, there's an awful lot you can do for yourself if you think about it and you're in the right frame of mind to do it. And I now use this as an active support mechanism when I'm feeling good and when I'm feeling bad. Um, I, you know, the reason I could get that so easily is because I have it just lying on my desk over there. And you can turn to it. Yeah. And, and it's a, a physical thing that you can look at and it's a reminder. Yeah, and it's, it's things like, you know, just just seeing there music, right? And then, you know, I look over here and there's a little bagpipe tune I wrote the other day. Sometimes I do that, you know, creativity is one of my things. I have to write every day, but it might not be words. I might just think, why don't I write a little, I've got my little, my little practice chanter here where I, where I 
do my little fiddling with my fingers. Yeah. Um, you know, so that sort of thing, it just, and, and just having it there, it just, sometimes it triggers, you just think, ah, and I think sometimes what we're trying to do, what we need to do when we're not feeling great <clears throat> is simply to change the way that change the way in which we're thinking. It's interesting there, just um, uh, what you mentioned about don't listen to the news, um, listen to music. That is a massive thing for me. And I only really made that switch about three years ago and I stopped doing my being involved daily with news coverage myself. I, I realised that listening to not just news, but also football, like listening to talk sport and stuff all day as well. And the constant, I can enjoy it when I'm in the right mood, but the constant sort of air of, of conflict and disagreement and news that makes you anxious is so difficult. And I switched to listen to music in the day mm. and it makes such a massive difference, mm. doesn't it? I mean, obviously you're someone who for various reasons needs to stay across the news, but do you help? Do you find just taking breaks from it quite well, a powerful I mean, thing? you'd be amazed. I, I do not, I do not listen to the news in the morning. Right. Um, Fiona, the first row of the day, Fiona turns the Today programme on and I turn it off. Fantastic. Uh, and then, I, I mean, I'll dip in and out a bit. I, I do I do sort of track it on social media, but I, and we don't get any news. This is terrible, right? We don't get any newspapers anymore, right. apart from the New European at the weekend, because I write in it, and occasionally the Guardian when Fiona's in it. Um, and... We don't watch the news. I don't watch the news. I, I, I probably watch Channel 4 News three or four times a week if I'm in. That's it. Um, and, I, and I don't feel less well-informed. I think as long as you kind of, you know, for, you know, I know what's going on. I know what I'm interested in. But, I, you know, I, I can back to holidays. I can remember when we first used to go on holiday together, me and Fiona. <laughs> you know, remember the days when you used to have to wait two days for the papers to arrive if you are in France, right? And I'd be down there buying them all, you know, cost a yeah. fortune, spend all day reading them. I don't do that at all now. Not at all. Alistair Campbell, thanks ever so much for joining us. Uh, good luck with the book and everything else. A real pleasure as always. Down in paperback this week, Sam. This week, this very week. Don't worry about that. Everyone's out buying it, mate. That's for sure. See you soon. Thanks you a lot. All the best, mate. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. For a hard nut, Alistair doesn't I find it easy to open up about the sort of mental health stuff that a lot of us still feel awkward talking about. It's an inspiration, I think. We could all benefit from opening up in such a relaxed way about the way we're feeling. As he mentioned at the end there, his new book, Living Better, is out in paperback now. I've read it. It's great, so grab a copy if you can. And remember to subscribe to the Weekly Reset newsletter, which I send out every Friday. You can do that at samdelaney.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter while you're at it, at Delaney Man. Until next time, be lucky. And remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.